Well, the word of God is good, it is powerful, and it is true. And through its proclamation, God works to open the eyes of our heart to his perfect will and his perfect truth. So we ask that the Lord would continue to bless the preaching of his holy word today. Go ahead and get your, uh, your Bibles out. We are in the Gospel of Mark. Hopefully that's not a surprise to you at this point. Um, <clears throat> we've actually been in the Gospel of Mark for almost a year and a half now. Uh, we've had a few breaks in between, but uh, we started, I think I look back, it was September 4th of 2022. So we've been in Mark for a little, for a little while. At the beginning of this year, in January, we, uh, we entered into what we know as Act 3 of Mark's Gospel. And, and as you recall, Act 3 begins with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the long-anticipated Messianic King and Son of David. However, though there were great cheers and, and praises sung to, to, to Jesus' entry on the back of a, of a, a colt of a donkey, uh, not everyone present there was excited that Jesus had arrived. They were, they were not excited about his arrival. Jesus, uh, of course, doesn't help matters, right? Uh, because the day after his grand entrance, he heads straight for the temple and begins upsetting the very lucrative and sanctioned status quo by flipping tables and chasing out sellers and buyers alike. Chasing them from the, the court of the Gentile to be reserved for those that were far from God to draw near, as near as they could, to the temple, the place where God's presence was to be among his people. This brazen action of Jesus is the catalyst for a series of seven hostile confrontations between the religious leaders and Jesus. We are first told that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders approached Jesus in a united coalition and a show of force. That's back in chapter 11. We, we talked about how this group, the chief priests, scribes, and elders, is probably longhand or explanatory uh, to describe the group known as the, the Sanhedrin, the religious governing authorities in Jerusalem. But it's but they not only governed in Jerusalem, they were the governing authorities religiously, religiously, not politically, that was Rome, but religiously for all of Israel. And at the end of chapter 11, these delegates from the Sanhedrin challenged Jesus concerning his authority. What, by, by what authority do you have to come into the temple and to go against the high priest's sanctioning of selling merchandise and goods in the, the court of the Gentiles. By, by whose authority? The high priest has sanctioned this. Who are you to upset it? Today, we're going to be looking at the Sadducees who question Jesus about the finer points of their theology. Next week, Trent will be preaching on the scribe's question about the detail in the law. What we're seeing is each party from the Pharisees to the Rhodians to the Sadducees to the scribes, they all approach Jesus from the vantage point of their greatest strength, right? From, from their greatest strength to, to show that Jesus is inferior to them and thus a fraud Messiah and not worthy to, fo to follow. 
Yet, with each encounter, Jesus proves his divine wisdom and unquestionably his superior authority. In today's passage, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at uh, the confrontation between the Sadducees. This is confrontation number seven in Mark's list, or um, confrontation number four in Mark's list of seven. So Jesus' confrontation with the Sadducees. So, out of honor for God's word, if you are able, please stand for the reading of our passage this morning. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Mark 12, 18 through 27 is where we are reading. Mark writes, And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died and left no offspring, the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her, all of them had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And for the dead, rise, uh, dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. May the Lord continue to bless the preaching and hearing of his word. You may be seated. Interesting passage this morning. Resurrection, marriage, Sadducees, authority, a lot going on in here. My proposition this morning is Jesus is the authority in this life and the next. Jesus is the authority in this life and the next. But before we get to our first point, let me, just reflecting on this idea of Jesus being the authority. I don't know about all of you, but it seems like life has just gotten busier and busier. Have you felt that? Life just seems like it, it increases the pace It can feel like sometimes everyone, and maybe you felt this way, everyone wants a piece of you all of the time. Everyone wants a piece of your attention. They're vying for your attention. For example, just yesterday, I received another text message from a political entity saying they wanted my input on an important matter. They need my input on an important matter. Well, golly gee, that's exciting. But we all know they just want me to respond so that they can engage me in conversation and influence me 
and my thinking towards their opinion so that it will conform with their perspective. They don't, they don't actually want to hear my opinion. They don't want to hear my thoughts. They want me to conform to their thoughts. The problem isn't that just everybody wants our attention, but it's the way that they seek to gain your attention. By trying to convince you that their particular issue is the most urgent and the most necessary, the most pressing. And so you should give them your time, your attention, your undivided attention to whatever it is that they're wanting to press you on. What, what are they trying to do? What's, what's going on here? What are, what are they actually trying to do? What are they actually saying? I want to suggest to you they're seeking to gain authority in your life. They're trying to convince you that their issue demands a response from you. And so it has a weightiness, a heaviness. It has an air of authority to it. You need to pay attention to this issue because it's an authoritative issue. And it deserves your focused time and attention. The problem is, there are a lot, and I mean a lot, of sources in the world that claim to have authority in your life. This is, however, not a new phenomenon, right? This isn't, this isn't a new thing that we're encountering. I would say the pace of it is increasing, but it's, it's not new. There's nothing new under the sun. In fact, in the, in the first century, there were also varying parties seeking to have the greatest authority in people's lives. Mark's uh, intended audience, as we've mentioned previously, was likely Romans. He was writing to a Roman audience. The Romans had politic, political, governmental, and militaristic authority over most of the known world at this time, in the first century. In Israel, and we've already talked about the governing authority of the Sanhedrin, but even within the Sanhedrin, there were the, the separate parties, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. And as Mark introduces and focuses on this morning, we're going to be looking at the authority the Sadducees bring to the table. Each of these religious sects or parties believed that they had authority to tell Jews how to live, what to do, what not to do, what they, what, what they had done wrong, right, and what they must do to make themselves righteous, to, to correct the wrong that they had done. But then, in the midst of all of these competing authorities, then enters Jesus, and he literally turns everything upside down. So, my first point this morning, there are opposing authorities. There are opposing authorities. Not, not groundbreaking. You, you likely already know that. There's opposing authorities. You just have to, it's an election year. Just turn on the news and you'll see that. But we're going to be talking uh, in a more specific sense. The, the, in regards to ultimate authority, there is opposing authority. Mark opens verse 18 by noting, And the Sadducees came to him. That is, they came to Jesus. This is the first and only time in Mark's gospel where the Sadducees appear. So, naturally, who are the Sadducees? The Sadducees were a religious sect made up of mostly upper-class Jews who were closely associated 
with the priesthood and therefore closely tied to Jerusalem and the temple. Politically, Sadducees were not necessarily friends with Rome like the Herodians, but they were also not dissenters, explicit dissenters like many of the Pharisees. Because the Sadducees comprised the, the, the aristocrat uh, level of society, Jewish society, they knew how to play politics with Rome, but they knew how to do it without uh, completely capitulating to Roman uh, rule and authority. So when compared to the Pharisees, politically, these are the two major groups, the, the Pharisees, which we looked at last week, and the Sadducees, compared to the Pharisees, Politically and culturally, the Sadducees would be more liberal. But when it came to theology, when it came to their theology, their, their reading and interpretation and understanding of Scripture, they were definitely, the Sadducees were definitely the conservatives. Theologically, the Sadducees held that the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, or as they would have said it, the, the Torah, were supremely, supremely authoritative above the rest of the Hebrew canon, including the historical books, the prophets, and the writings. The, the Pentateuch, the Torah, is what the Sadducees were committed to. That is their source of authority. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were the theological liberals because they held to the Torah and to the rest of the canon, but they also held to the oral teachings of the elders. The Sadducees rejected the oral law and held to a more literal, literal reading of the Torah. Sadducees were functionally, because of their literal reading of the Torah, I think primarily, they were functionally materialists, right? Not unlike uh, deists of today. Those who believe there is a God, Sadducees believe there is a God, certainly there's a God, who made all matter and made all the laws to govern the universe, but largely is uninvolved, right? Maybe the Sadducees would say he's not uninvolved, but certainly uh, is not involved to the degree that the Pharisees would understand. For example, as Mark points out in verse 18, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's odd. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Further, and if we look in Acts chapter 23, verse 8, Luke further explains, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, okay, agreeing with Mark, but they also say there are no angels and no spirit. But the, the Pharisees acknowledged them all. So because they, they didn't believe, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, they also rejected, by default, the final judgment and an eternal state, that is a heaven or hell. They rejected that. There's nothing beyond this life, was the stance of the Sadducees. Now, you might notice a significant discrepancy between what the Sadducees taught and what Jesus taught. Hopefully you notice that. Uh, not only that he taught, but that Jesus promised, specifically, his disciples. Jesus taught from the whole of scripture from the whole of the Hebrew Bible he understood who he was and why he was here 
on the basis of not just the Torah, certainly the Torah, but not just the Torah, the five books of Moses, but on the basis of the whole counsel of God in the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. We see this because Jesus quotes from every major genre in Scripture. Jesus' birth, for example, was heralded by angels. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He prophesied to his disciples that he was going to die, and three days later, he was going to be resurrected. And he promised that there was a future judgment and an eternal state. The Sadducees and Jesus are on opposite ends of the spectrum. They are opposing authorities. They have very different perspectives on reality. So, the question then becomes, who's right and who's wrong? Right? That, that's the question at hand. Of course, the Sadducees assume, because they have the authority in Jerusalem... And far more than a, for, for far more than a generation, right? The, the, the Sadducees date back to the Maccabean Revolt, 167 B.C. They, they've been in Jerusalem, a part of the ruling class, for over a generation, well over a generation. We, we have the authority. We've been here longer, Jesus. We have a heritage. We have position. We have power. We have authority. Naturally, they assume they're going to flex their theological wisdom and crush this puny Galilean who fancies himself a legitimate teacher. Surely that's what was on the mind of the Sadducees as they engaged Jesus with this trick question. The Sadducees posed their question to Jesus. We're not going to read it again, but let me summarize it by saying this. Seven brothers, one wife. Whose wife will she be at the resurrection? Right? That's the essence of their question. They don't believe in the resurrection, so it's not a genuine question. They're not curious learners. Rather, they're seeking to prove Jesus a fool. We know from Mark's commentary um, <clears throat> that... Their intent is wicked, that their intent is evil. There's, there, there's no genuine interest. Their question is based on, the, the development of their question, where they're getting this from, is actually based on Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses, 12, or verses 5 through 10. This is where Moses explains what was known as a leveret marriage. And this is a law in the Torah. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of a family, outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. What a, what a strange law. What a strange law, at least to us. But we need to remember to whom and when this law was given. So a little bit of context is helpful. Deuteronomy, as you likely know, is the final book of the Pentateuch, of the Torah. 
uh, after which Moses, after, after it's penned, Moses will die. The faithful generation will enter and conquer the promised land. And then the land will be divided up among the 12 tribes and families among the 12 tribes will receive an inheritance. This law in Deuteronomy chapter 25 is specifically given to those who are about to inherit the land, the promised land, the land that God had promised to his people Israel. If a family has no sons, to inherit the family land, there is a risk that those lands of this tribe, of this family, there's a risk that these lands could be lost or absorbed by another tribe. So let me, let me get, just give you an example of this. Say there's a widow, her husband has died, and she's from a tribe. Let's say the tribe of Judah. And a man marries her from another tribe. Let's say the tribe of Simeon. And they bear a son. That son now is a Simeonite uh, son. He's from the tribe of Simeon. But she has the land that she was married to her husband. Now whose land does this land become? Well, it's supposed to be part of Judah's inheritance. But because of this marriage, this, this cross-tribal marriage, the land then becomes subsumed by Simeon. And so in theory... One tribe could, through marriage, overtake the land, inherit the land of another tribe. God says, no, that's not how it's going to be. Rather, if a woman is widowed, she needs to marry her closest relative. It's called the law of redemption, right? The kinsman redeemer. We see this throughout the book. This is really what the the book of Ruth is based on. This law was given to to preserve tribal and family inheritances, as well as protect vulnerable widows. The Sadducees used this obscure law to to propose a hypothetical yet plausible scenario that results, one wife, seven brothers, she marries all of them at the resurrection, whose wife is she? The result, everybody can plainly see, ends up with a ludicrous and absurd scenario. What do we do with that? How do you answer that, Jesus? How do you make sense of the resurrection? God's law that he gave to Israel includes this leveret marriage law, which serves as a a good purpose. This law served a good purpose of upholding God's promise to give the promised land to Abraham's descendants in an orderly way, with each tribe and family receiving its fair portion. This is a good law, yet the Sadducees detect a flaw. When the law of elaborate marriage is juxtaposed with the theological doctrine of the resurrection, the outcome and their understanding from their perspective is ludicrous. It's absurd. It's nonsensical. If all the brothers successively marry the deceased brother's wife, obeying God's law, if they're they're obedient Jews and they marry her and they all marry her, obeying God's law, then when it comes to the afterlife, one is confronted with the impossible and unbiblical scenario. One wife, seven brothers, right? Polygamy, not, not something God condones, right? 
In short, faithfully obeying God's law in this life leads to an impossible and absurd situation in the life to come. Not only polygamy, but polandry, right? One wife, many husbands. Not condoned in Scripture. God is a God of order, not a God of disorder. And God's law is good. So the obvious for the Sadducees, the obvious and reasonable conclusion is, well, if God's law is good and God's law says this, and this then creates an absurd scenario in the resurrection, then the flaw must be in the resurrection. There must not be a resurrection because you can't make sense of it in light of God's law. It is not likely that uh, this is the first time that the Sadducees have used this line of reasoning. Likely they have posed the same type of dilemma to the Pharisees before. Because remember, these two parties are at odds with each other and the resurrection is a hot topic. We see this uh, from the passage I quoted earlier, Acts 23. Paul goes, uh, is, is captured, he's brought before the Sanhedrin, and, uh, and to escape some danger, he says, uh, am I here because of the resurrection? I'm a, I'm a Pharisee, I believe in the resurrection, and it just creates chaos, right? And, and Paul's dismissed, right? He, he's still in prison, but he avoids a dangerous situation. It is probable that this has been an effective argument against the Pharisees in the past. And that the, the Pharisees were not able to refute the logic of the Sadducees. And so the, the Sadducees say Jesus' teaching is closer to the Pharisees than it is to ours. We've got one that's going to get him. We've got one. We're going to trap him. The Sadducees believe they have Jesus. Their authority, they believe, has outwitted Jesus' authority, and they win. They win. Or so they think. But remember, Jesus is not a Pharisee. Jesus is the Son of God. And he responds to them with startling force and authority, unlike the Pharisees, unlike the scribes. They're not just confronting another religious party. They're confronting the Son of God. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus is not intimidated by the cleverness of the Sadducees. He's not impressed with the show of power or authority. He sees right through them and he rebukes them. You're wrong. You're wrong. And you're wrong on two counts. Jesus' rebuke is twofold. He says you're wrong because they, you, you, you don't believe the scriptures. And you're wrong because you don't believe the power of God. He's going to unpack both of these further. But he's going to do so in opposite order. And this will comprise my next two points. So, my second point is this. God's power is authoritative. God's power is authoritative. Look at verse 25. Mark writes, for, for when they rise, Jesus is speaking, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Interesting, okay? What are you saying, Jesus? 
Well, first, Jesus accuses the Sadducees. He accuses them of misunderstanding from the get-go the, the power of God in the resurrection. What does he mean? It is apparent that the Sadducees observed the world in which they live and deduced a continuity between present reality and a future eternal reality. They assumed the afterlife was going to be a continuation of our present life. Jesus says, you're wrong. You're you're flat out wrong. In the resurrection, there will be qualitative differences between what we experience now and what we'll experience then. Jesus uh, doesn't talk much about the realities of the resurrected state, but this is one of those rare instances, one of those rare moments when he gives us kind of a peek behind the curtain. What's the eternal state? What is that going to look like? Jesus says there will be no human marriages in the resurrection, but rather we will be like angels. (laughs) What What a shocking and authoritative statement. Shocking, right? First, let let me give you some qualifiers. Let's be clear. Jesus is not saying, uh, or Jesus is saying that we are going to be like angels, not that we are going to be angels, right? A popular Christian belief suggests that we we become angels after we die. Uh, You see this reflected in movies, in TVs, in commercials, books, music, even in uh, popular bumper sticker theology. This is not at all what Jesus is saying. Don't be confused. What he is saying, and perhaps even more shocking, is that our marriages have limits. Our marriage has limits, specifically in this earthly life. Now, hopefully, for all of you married couples here this morning, that comes as a little bit of a disappointment. I know it it did. Chris and I were talking about this this week. It's like, man, that's kind of sad. I, I like my wife. I like her a lot. So it might come as a dis- disappointment because hopefully you love your spouse and you can't imagine an existence without them. But Jesus' words are not, are not given to cause disappointment. Rather, they're given to awaken our imagination and, and ignite our hope in the power of God. Jesus is saying human marriage, done rightly, is the most intimate of human relationships. God loves marriage. God created marriage. God gave marriage to us as a glorious gift. But human marriage is a gift meant for this side of eternity because what he has in store for us in eternity far outweighs the glory of human marriage. Human earthly marriage far outweighs it. Can you, the, the, the reason this, this can be disappointing is because we, we think of, of marriage and that's kind of the apex of, of human intimacy and relationship. We think, what could, like, that's, that's a lot. Like, that's hard to, hard to surrender, hard to think of what could be better than that, what could be more than that. And God says, oh, let me show you the power of God is going to render our earthly marriages. He's going to outshine, outweigh, outglory our earthly marriages. Let me develop this a little bit further. 
In the resurrection, when believers are raised to newness of life, the most intimate relationship we will experience will be the fullness of our union with Christ. Our marriage to Christ as the church will supersede our greatest, most intimate relationships on earth. That is not to say our marriage relationships this side of eternity is meaningless or pointless or simply busy work. Not at all. Our earthly marriage is a foretaste to teach us, to instruct us of the surpassing greatness, to hint to us the surpassing greatness of what is yet to come. Earthly marriage in all of its glory is simply a reflection, a shadow of the true substance and glory that is still yet to come when we will dwell with our creator, the one who truly knows us, who truly knows you, the one who is love, the one whose glory knows no end and no bounds. This is the one we shall be united to. And intimacy with God, intimacy with the living God, will far exceed any earthly pleasure, comfort, or delight. Marriage prepares us for the true fullness of what is yet to come. This is Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Paul in Ephesians 5, as you know, is, is talking about marriage, and he quotes from Genesis 2, 24. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two, they shall become one flesh. This, is a, this mystery is profound. Two become one flesh. Paul says, this mystery, it's profound. And then he qualifies And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. We get the shadow here. We we get a small glimpse, and it is an amazing glimpse of what intimacy was meant to be. But, But we get a tainted view of that. We get a twisted view of that. We get an imperfect view of that. One day the imperfect is going to be removed, and we will learn what intimacy really means. And it will blow our minds. It will overwhelm our hearts. It will consume our lives. And we will give God glory. And Jesus says to the Pharisees or to the Sadducees, You're wrong. You don't understand. You think of this world in terms of you and the systems that we've. He's saying, You have an anthropocentric view of the resurrection. You have a man-centered view of the resurrection, that the resurrection is going to be like what you experience here, but we're not to have a man-centered view of the resurrection. Jesus advocates for us to have a Christocentric view of the resurrection. You are going to be united to the lover of your souls, and you're going to know what love is to its fullness for the first time in completeness, in wholeness, with reckless abandon, you're going to behold the living God who knows you, knows your sin, knows your faults, knows your shortcomings. He's going to say, you're mine. More than that, I am yours. Come and take. In eternity, sin will be removed. It will be washed away. 
our selfishness, our contempt, our pettiness, our arrogance, our pride, our fear, our insecurities will be shed like an old skin and we will put on the newness that we have in Christ. We will love with reckless abandon and exceeding joy as we see others who they truly are in Christ. In Christ, we will see others for who they are, not who they are to me. What do you mean to me? But who they are in Christ. Who they are in Christ. And we will truly be seen and known and deeply loved in totality by each other. And that will far exceed the intimacy, the joy that we have in marriage now. We get a glimpse of that in marriage. We will drink deeply of it in the eternal state. No more proving. No more justifying. No more mass facades or games. No more hiding. No more keeping others at arm's length lest they, they know me. They, they truly know me and find me unworthy. For through one another we shall behold the love of Christ the beauty of Christ, the strength of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the power of Christ, because we will all who are in Christ will be in Christ. Our relationship with one another will be pure and glorious and God-glorifying in every way. The Sadducees, they were greatly mistaken. The afterlife is not simply a continuation of our earthly life. They had, as I said, an anthropocentric view of eternity. They assumed the human systems were going to be the focus of the afterlife. Jesus corrects their ignorance. Eternity isn't going to be anthropocentric. It's going to be Christocentric. And they're wrong because they didn't understand who Jesus was. They didn't understand the power of God that was standing before them. He says, you're wrong. You're wrong. But Jesus goes further and gives the second reason the Sadducees are wrong. This is my third point. God's word is authoritative. God's word is authoritative. Look again at verses 26 and 27. Jesus continues, And as for the dead being raised... You have not, uh, or have you not read in the book of Moses? Jesus asks them a question. Doesn't that sound very Jesus-esque? Ask him a question. They ask him a question. He responds with a question. This one is a bit more pointed than any of the other questions he's asked so far. Have you not read in the book of Moses? Well, they're Sadducees. Of course they have. Of course they've read the book of Moses. Actually, that's probably all they read. The Sadducees held that Genesis through Deuteronomy were the supremely authoritative scriptures. Jesus is asking them, but have you read them rightly? Have you read them rightly? Have you read your Bibles rightly? Then Jesus shows these conservative, self-righteous Sadducees how to read their Bibles. He takes them to Exodus chapter 3 where the Lord reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. This is the burning bush episode, the theophany. God's presence manifested in a bush that is burning, but the bush is not consumed. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, we read, Then the Lord said, Do not come near, speaking to Moses. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I, I am... I am 
the God of your fathers. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. At first glance, you might be asking, how in the world does this passage prove the resurrection? The answer is in the nuance. Notice verse 6, the Lord identifies himself to Moses as I am. This is the personal name of God. But it's also a reference, the personal name of God is also a reference to uh, God's, his eternality, his self-existent nature. In this passage, the Lord identifies himself to Moses as the eternal self-existent one. The one who is the God of the Israelite forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is present tense. In other words, Jesus is emphasizing that God is their God and not was their God because they're no longer. They've died. It's no, it's no longer relevant. Yeah, I, I, was their, I was their God while they were alive. That's not what Yahweh says. He says, I am currently their God. The God who condescended to covenant with temporal limited humanity has through his covenant bound himself to humanity. Therefore, the relationship, with, the relationship God has with humanity is based on his nature, not ours. Because God lives, his relationship with them and with us does not terminate at our physical death. Because our relationship is with the eternal God. They live because God lives. But even beyond the forefathers, let's even think beyond that. At creation, God created humanity for a relationship with him. This is why we were created in his image, to bear his likeness. I don't think this is just Bearing God's likeness is not just functional language, but it's primarily relational language. Humanity as image bearers, we as image bearers, we're not created for death. We were not created for death. That's why God put us in the garden where we could be with him. And why the tree of life was in the garden with him and with us. We inherited death in our rebellion. But that is different than what we were originally created for. Death is an alien inheritance, and therefore an illegitimate one. That is why God set into motion in Genesis, in the garden, God set into motion his redemptive plan immediately following our disobedience. Death is our choice. Life with God was his choice. God is just, and so we receive the inheritance of our choice. He said in Genesis 2.17, In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. God promised that. And he upholds his promise. For we all experience death. But he also keeps his word to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Also to Moses, to David, and most clearly in Jesus. Jesus is the word incarnated. He is the living word of God. God keeps his promises. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, facing the fullness of Adam's inheritance of death, he utters a a promise of power. He says, it is finished. It is finished. 
Death is defeated on the cross through the word of God, by the power of God, so that Jesus can say in verse 27a of our passage, he's not a God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus will absolutely defeat death because he possesses real and absolute, real and absolute authority, even over life and death. And so the word of Jesus to the Pharisees back in verse 24 were prophetic. You know neither the word nor the power of God, even though he's standing right in front of you. You don't know him. You're missing him completely. That is why Jesus concludes in grief in verse 27b, you're quite wrong. You're quite wrong. Repent. Turn. Come to me. Let me, let me conclude. Let me conclude with this. <coughs> Excuse me. The resurrection is not based on, an, on, on us. It's not based on us. It's not anthropocentric. But on God's word and God's power, or more simply, it's based on Jesus. Who is God's word? Who is God's power? Therefore, entrust yourself to God's word and to God's power now. Entrust yourself to him. Read his word. Encounter Jesus. Look for Jesus in his word. Don't read your Bibles to check it off. Trust me, I know how easy that is. But look for Jesus. Seek Jesus. Meet Jesus, the living word, in his word. In your marriages, in your relationships, in your work, in your joy, in your pain, in your trial, in your sickness, and in your health, seek Jesus. All of it is a foreshadow. All of it is meant to instruct and teach us about the true substance that is in him alone. Know Jesus. Press into Jesus. Because if you know him in the dimness of this passing life, how much more glorious will the resurrection be? But hear me, as Christians, we don't have to wait until death to taste and see the sweetness of eternal life of Jesus. We don't have to wait. You don't have to. That's, that's the secret of Christianity. You don't have to wait. We're not just biding our time and like, ah, hope I make it to the resurrection. You know, hope I can hold out. That's, that's, that's not what Christianity is the word of God and it is power. That eternal life has come to us now in the darkness, in the dimness, in the tainted world. We have union with the living God. We have union with the word of God. We have union with the power of God. But not us, it's him. And in all things, he says, draw near, abide, come to me, rest in me. Know me through everything because it is all made to praise my name. It's all there. You don't have to wait. Seek him now. And you will see the power of God made manifest in your life in little ways and in eternal ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have all authority, all authority. There is nothing above. There is nothing beyond you. There's nothing outside of your reach. There's nothing that you don't claim as yours. You have all authority. Lord, help us to relinquish our grasps on authority in our lives, but Lord, to, to just pursue you 
to know you, to love you, to seek you, to walk humbly and faithfully with you because we know you alone are the living God. You alone have power. You alone have all authority. God, we know we were meant for you. So Lord, help us in this life to do the work of God, to believe in the one you have sent, to believe in Jesus through every circumstance, every situation. Lord, not that we would just simply pursue piety as though that's an end in and of itself. Lord, you hate the self-righteous. But help us to seek the face of Jesus. Help us to break our hearts, Lord, so that, that you may mend them. That our hearts might beat after your heart. That our affections would be in alignment. That they would become your affections would become our affections. Lord, help us to see how even the brokenness, Lord, it doesn't stifle you, it doesn't hide you, but it reveals your power because you have overcome Satan's sin and death and you have overcome our hearts. So Lord, help us to surrender our hearts, our lives, our relationships, the secret places in us, Lord. Help us to yield them to you. Then empower us, Lord, to live lives abundant, to live lives that are driven by the, the longing, the desire, the, the pursuit of Jesus. Holy Spirit, we pray as we sing that you would, you would enliven us, that you would direct us, you would grant us your wisdom, your understanding that we might see you and understand your word and understand how all things you have created lead us and point us back to you if we would just have eyes to see. So God, heal our eyes that we might see and we might make much of the power of God and the word of God that is Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.